I'm Ty Wyckoff, and this is the Millennial's Guide to This Historic Moment. did not create most of the conditions and the convictions which have led us to this day. But this generation has a responsibility to resolve them. There is no doubt that 2020 has been historic so far, and it's only August. Yeah, I know. But for this week in particular, the virus forced the Democratic National Convention to go remote, and everything went pretty smoothly for the most part. There were of course a few awkward moments and maybe some corning kind of telethon vibes, and I was expecting a long, drawn-out, awkward Zoom goodbye at the end. But overall, for being on a new platform, it went pretty well, which is saying a lot. Compared to the 1924 Democratic Convention, which was the first Democratic Convention to be broadcast on the radio, And for the entire nation to hear all the screaming matches, the fistfights, and to endure the never-ending spectacle, which lasted 16 days and took 103 ballots, or rounds of voting, for someone to finally win the nomination, it's a long story. And far from single-payer healthcare versus a public option, the most divisive issue on that platform was whether or not to kick the Ku Klux Klan out of the party. So, I think it's safe to say that Democrats jumped into this new medium much better than they did then. Conventions are usually the opportunity for parties to show unity and give a clear articulation for what the party stands for in that particular historic moment. And this format really lent itself to doing that in a more narrative kind of way. They were able to spend time on each of the party planks or the issues on the platform. And through video interviews and almost documentary style shorts, I think they were pretty successful in telling that narrative. One thing I think they did really well was not only give us a coherent message about who Joe Biden is as a person or his character, but you also really got to know his family. We got to know his siblings, we got to know his wife Jill, his grandkids and his kids, um, Ashley and Hunter Biden, and we really got an intimate and detailed look at Biden's relationship with his other son, Bo, who tragically died back in 2015 at the age of 46. And that, of course, played into one of the biggest themes, which was Biden's experience with grief. And he has, unfortunately, experienced a lot of grief in his life. Just barely into his term as a senator in 1972, his first wife and two daughters died in a car accident, and he was left to raise his two sons on his own. We also got to see how Jill came into his life after that point, and hear Joe talk about how she just rebuilt their family and and held them together. The other thing I think is really interesting is we got to know about his character, how he'll just hand his phone number out to supporters and we get to hear all these sort of testimonies from 
people who, who knew, knew him on the trail or, or met him at a rally and he just gave him their phone number. Especially kids who struggle with stuttering, as Biden struggled with stuttering his entire life. And he'll get their phone numbers and he'll give them a call and he'll try to give them tips and, and strategies and encouragement on how to overcome those challenges. Another interesting thing was his granddaughters talking about how no matter where he's at or what he's doing, if they call him, he always answers, uh, even in the middle of a speech one time. And I thought that was particularly interesting because I was watching an interview with Biden on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And right in the middle of that interview, he got a phone call and he interrupted Stephen and he said, hold on, I, I got to take this. It's, it's my daughter. I, I always answer. And Stephen just waited politely until he finished the phone call. Those kind of character details are normally the kind of details we don't learn about politicians until years and years after their career in history books. So I think Democrats really did a good job of displaying that and showing their candidate in that light, because those are the kind of characteristics that endear us to politicians. But let's talk about the speeches. Speeches are my favorite thing in politics, so we have to talk about them. Political speeches in the U.S. are, of course, as old as the nation itself, and when they are done well, they provide the opportunity for politicians and activists to articulate their vision, motivate action. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest And as we talked about in the last episode, when the nation is in crisis, they can provide solace, courage, and strength. And I want to say something to the school children of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. They also have the opportunity to not go so hot and fairly or unfairly can give the media lines that really just don't play too well. I think the next president needs to be a lot quieter, but send a signal that we're prepared to act in the national security interests of this country to get back in the business of creating a more peaceful world. Please clap. Modern national nominating conventions typically take place in these massive arenas to huge crowds of people. Speakers are normally energized by those crowds. Alongside our famous individualism, there's another ingredient in the American saga a belief that we're all connected as one people. If there is a child on the south side of Chicago who can't read, that matters to me even if it's not my child. If there's a senior citizen somewhere who can't pay for their prescription drugs and having to choose between medicine and the rent, that makes my life poorer even if it's not my grandparent. 
If there's an Arab-American family being rounded up without benefit of an attorney or due process, that threatens my civil liberties. It is that fundamental belief. It is that fundamental belief. I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper that makes this country work. It's what allows us to pursue our individual dreams and yet still come together as one American family. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to divide us. The spin masters, the negative ad peddlers, who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well, I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. That was then Senator Barack Obama at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. It was a roof-shattering speech. It gave Obama a nationwide audience for the first time, and it's arguable that there may not have been an Obama presidency without it. But this new format really showed us who had the skills to speak without an audience. It's hard to do, especially in adjusting your tone and your energy. But the first headliner of the week demonstrated those skills with surgical precision. I am one of a handful of people living today who have seen firsthand the immense weight and awesome power of the presidency. And let me once again tell you this. The job is hard. It requires clear-headed judgment, a mastery of complex and competing issues, a devotion to facts and history, a moral compass, and an ability to listen, and an abiding belief that each of the 330 million lives in this country has meaning and worth. That was former First Lady Michelle Obama. She gave the speech sitting down in this warm living room type setting, and it really felt less like a speech and more of a conversation. In fact, it almost felt like the kind of conversation you might have with a disappointed mother. She laid it down on us. She told us the way she saw it, kind of shamed us a little bit, and then called out the better parts of ourselves. Empathy. That's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. The ability to walk in someone else's shoes. The recognition that someone else's experience has value too. Most of us practice this without a second thought. If we see someone suffering or struggling, we don't stand in judgment, we reach out. Because there, but for the grace of God, go I. It is not a hard concept to grasp. It's what we teach our children. And like so many of you, Barack and I have tried our best to instill in our girls a strong moral foundation to carry forward the values that our parents and grandparents poured into us. But right now, kids in this country are seeing what happens when we stop requiring empathy of one another. 
They're looking around wondering if we've been lying to them this whole time about who we are and what we truly value. They see people shouting in grocery stores, unwilling to wear a mask to keep us all safe. They see people calling the police on folks minding their own business just because of the color of their skin. For this next clip, I want to give some context. A few weeks ago, Donald Trump was interviewed by Axios' Jonathan Swan, and it didn't go super well for the president. But here's the question. It, you know, I've covered you for a long time. I've, I've gone to your rallies. I've talked to your people. They love you. They listen to you. They listen to every word you say. They hang on your every word. They don't listen to me or the media or Fauci. They think we're fake news. They want to get their advice from you. And so when they hear you say everything's under control, don't worry about wearing masks, I mean, these are people, many of them are older people, well, what's Mr. President. What's your definition of control? Yeah. Under the it's giving them a false sense right of security. Now, I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha- it is what it is. That's one of those lines that haunt presidents. It's a singular moment that says a lot about everything going on right now. And really, just even politically speaking, it's a bad line to say when you're drowning in the polls due to what appears to be incompetent governance and really a lack of empathy. The nation is craving for a presidential address that allows for a national kind of grieving. And for Michelle's part, she held no punches. So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. Now, I understand that my message won't be heard by some people. We live in a nation that is deeply divided, and I am a black woman speaking at the Democratic Convention. But enough of you know me by now. You know that I tell you exactly what I'm feeling. You know I hate politics. But you also know that I care about this nation. You know how much I care about all of our children. So if you take one thing from my words tonight, it is this. If you think things cannot possibly get worse, trust me, they can and they will if we don't make a change in this election. So regardless of your political views, and we're just leaving all that aside for right now, this was a pretty good speech. The message was clear, concise, and it even included a call to action at the end about voting. We also saw great speeches from Jill Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Barack Obama, vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris, of course, and even Senator Bernie Sanders in reaching out to the left wing of the party and his supporters. He also gave a powerful speech about uniting around the policies that he and Biden agree on, as well as uniting to out Donald Trump. And then, the main event. While I'll be a Democratic candidate, I will be an American president. I'll work hard for those who didn't support me, as hard for them as I did for those who did vote for me. That's the job of a president, to represent all of us not just our base or our party. This is not a partisan moment. This must be an American moment. It's a moment that calls for hope, 
and light and love, hope for our future, light to see our way forward, and love for one another. America isn't just a collection of clashing interests of red states or blue states. We're so much bigger than that. We're so much better than that. What we know about this president is if he's given four more years, he'll be what he's been for the last four years. A president who takes no responsibility, refuses to lead, blames others, cozies up to dictators and fans the flames of hate and division. He'll wake up every day believing the job is all about him, never about you. Is that the American you want for you, your family, your children? I see a different America, one that's generous and strong, selfless and humble. It's an America we can rebuild together. The standard that was set for Joe Biden coming into this wasn't really that high. Biden is known for his gaffes, which can be pretty cringy sometimes. But Biden is also known, perhaps less so, for showing up when he needs to show up. Anyone who was watching that final debate with Senator Sanders a few months ago would say the same thing. So not only was the speech gaffless, but Biden essentially responded to Trump's criticisms up front without actually having to say it. One of the Trump campaign's messaging themes is that Biden is incompetent and his mental acuity isn't all there. That low bar that Joe Biden had to step over in that speech was placed there in large part by Donald Trump. And it's a poor strategy, in my opinion, because Trump keeps setting the expectations low for Biden while setting expectations too high for himself. We can think of that rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Trump had kept saying somewhere around a million people had gotten tickets and an overflow stage was built outside the arena, but only around 6,000 people actually showed up and they had to tear down the overflow stage. It was pretty embarrassing for the campaign. So giving that message based on the idea that Biden can't speak coherently gives Biden opportunities, as it did at this convention, to score a pretty easy win. Trump's allies at Fox News didn't really help this with their criticism of Biden being that he read from a teleprompter. I mean, first of all, every politician reads from a teleprompter. It's kind of a dumb argument. And these criticisms from the right are as old as Barack Obama's presidency, if you don't remember 2009. But it really doesn't help them at all. And the reality is that their own candidate actually does have difficulty reading from a teleprompter. So they're really just setting themselves up. Because Biden's speech was pretty good, regardless of how you feel about him. What it did particularly well, in my opinion, is that Biden was able to contrast himself from Donald Trump in this speech the most by the very tone of it. This wasn't so much a campaign stump speech as much as it was a way that a president would speak to the nation during a crisis. Look, I understand. I understand how hard it is to have any hope right now. On this summer night, let me take a moment to speak to those of you who have lost the most. I have some idea how it feels to lose someone you love. I know that deep black hole that opens up in the middle of your chest and you feel like you're being sucked into it. I know how mean and cruel and unfair life can be sometimes. But I've learned two things. First, 
Your loved one may have left this earth, but they'll never leave your heart. They'll always be with you. You'll always hear them. And second, I found the best way through pain and loss and grief is to find purpose. As God's children, each of us have a purpose of our, in our lives. We have a great purpose as a nation to open the doors of opportunity to all Americans, to save our democracy, to be a light to the world once again, and finally to live up to and make real the words written in the sacred documents that founded this nation, that all men and women are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's that ability to be authentic with his own experience with grief. The narrative on the whole, building up to this moment, really created this image of Biden as a good guy, as a decent person. And that's how well I think Democrats really pulled this off, because it was as if the entire narrative was tailored for his speech. So the question here is, did Joe Biden hit the mark, and does it move the needle in this election? There are a lot of opinions, but in my own view, I'd say that it's likely not to move the needle very much. The first thing that I think is important to note is that campaigns never really go after the opponent's base voters, and especially in a time as divided as ours, this convention was clearly not aimed at diehard Trump supporters. And that's another interesting point here. Conventions are usually about rallying up your own base voters, but that's not really how this convention functioned either. Does it grab a larger swath of the undecided voters or independents? I'm not really sure, and those numbers are something I'll be looking for. But what I think this does do is that it bolstered the case for voters who are likely already planning to vote for Biden, but not really for the sake of Biden as much as for the sake of voting against Donald Trump. Those are the voters that don't really have anything to say in the case for Biden as much as they do in the case against Trump. So definitely some of those more moderate Republicans like suburban voters who will definitely be the decision makers this November. And my friends give me a hard time about this because I (laughs) sound like a broken record when I talk about suburban voters. But the reality is, is that those voters make up a substantial demographic of the Republican Party that the Republican Party is losing and that the Republican Party cannot afford to lose. And in fact, neither candidate can win this November without them. But Donald Trump is losing them. And the campaign is really going to have to amp up their efforts if they see any chance of getting that demographic back. But I have my doubts. Moderate Republicans are turning away from the more divisive rhetoric on race and immigration, and they are particularly disconcerted by the president's response to the virus. Cancel culture might be something the GOP can amp up next week, but again, they'll have to do it in a way that washes out the deficits on the virus and race with these voters. These are just my initial thoughts, though, so what are your thoughts? 
send me an email. Let me know how you felt about the convention. If you think Democrats hit the notes they needed to hit for the voters that they're appealing to. And from a strategic standpoint, how do you think Republicans should respond to this? And will they be able to pull it off? Shoot me an email at thishistoricmoment at gmail.com. No caps, no spaces. If you have any questions about today's episode or politics in general and subjects you want me to address or anything I might have gotten wrong that you think I should correct in a later episode. Again, that's thishistoricmoment at gmail.com. No caps, no spaces. And if you've been enjoying the show and want to support it, please leave a rating and a review. But most importantly, tell your friends and share the show with people you think might like it. Thanks for joining me. Ty Wyckoff on the Millennial's Guide to This Historic Moment. Please clap. did not create most of the conditions and the convictions which have led us to this day, but this generation has a responsibility to resolve them.